Hello, welcome to today's program, and today we're looking at Romans chapter 3, uh, which I'm calling here the greatest paragraph ever written, and it's hard to know exactly where to start because Romans is, is um, probably my favorite book of the Bible. Um, I preached through it years ago. I've been working on um, editing those for publication, which, uh, like everything else, takes forever, uh, but <clears throat> it's a uh, such a glorious book of scripture. It's so clear. Um, it's it's not everything in it is perfectly easy to understand, but the gospel and uh, how we're made right with God certainly is that uh, pretty easy to understand in the book of Romans. And so I want to get right into it here and spend uh, the bulk of the time that we've got here together on Romans 3, uh, 19 through 31. And um, I can't recall what... Um, what commentator it was. It might have been Leon Morris. I know Leon Morris wrote a really good commentary. I'm trying to think of all the Romans commentaries I used for those sermons years ago. And uh, I can't recall which one said it, uh, but someone put in their commentary that Romans 3, uh, I think they said 21 to 31, but I'm going to back up a couple of verses. Uh, Romans 3, 21 to 31 is the most important paragraph or the greatest paragraph ever written in the history of mankind. Now, obviously, we think that because number one, God, uh, ultimately is its author. Uh, but what it states is, is so simple and so straightforward, so clear, so easy to understand uh, that even a child could read this and make sense out of it. It's not hard to understand. Romans chapter 3, uh, beginning at verse 19, uh, Paul really summarizing the argument that he's been making so far here in Romans says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. What is this saying? We know that whatever the law says, everything that it says, whatever it says, it says to those who are under the law, and that would be Jews and Gentiles both. Okay, Jews and Gentiles both. The, the Jewish people were no better than the Gentiles. The Gentiles were no better than them, because all of us being fallen in Adam uh, needed to be saved, needed uh, a, a redeemer needed someone to enter into that broken covenant of works and fulfill its righteous requirements for us um, and also satisfy its penalty. And dear ones, that's why um, our getting into heaven can't in any way be tied to our works because what God requires of us, we can't do. What does the law show us when it comes to being right with God, when it comes to satisfying the, the requirements of that law, what, what does the law show us? Our sin. I mean, look, listen to the text of scripture. Listen to the Holy Spirit speaking there. Every mouth may be closed, it says in the New American Standard. Every mouth may be stopped um, or, or shut. Uh, that term, uh, frasso, uh, shut. Every mouth. <laughs> the, the law, what it says, condemns everyone so that every mouth is shut. Because what do people always want to do when they're accused of something or when they're they're uh, told that they, they did something that's evil or wrong or a violation of the law? They want to open their mouth. They want to start making excuses. They want to start trying to justify themselves in some way or say why they really aren't guilty. Um, the whole world is guilty before God is is subject um, to the to the judgment uh, of God answerable uh, to God. That term uh, that's used there that the, that all the world. Um, may come under judgment to God, that, that term, hupad dikas, 
um, answerable, accountable to. So everything the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So who is that? Who's under the law? That's everybody. That's Jews and Gentiles. That's the whole human race. That's everybody in Adam. And that's every human being, every image of God that has ever lived, is living, and ever will live. Every mouth of every human being is shut, is stopped. We, we're not even going to be able to get a word out in our defense uh, on the day of judgment. Because that judgment, in, in effect, in a sense has already taken place, and God has pronounced us guilty. So what the law says, it says to those who are under the law, which is us, we're all bound to God's commandments, and we all break them. So the whole world is subject to the judgment of God, is guilty before God, is accountable to God, and is under God's judgment. Okay, and that's the, the basic uh, gist of everything in Romans so far. Romans 3, 9 through 18, there is that whole litany of passages from the Psalms and from different parts of the Old Testament. There is none righteous, uh, no, not one. There is none who does good. There is none who seeks after God. God, all have turned aside. All have become worthless in the sight of God. Okay, and so Paul's summary verse there in verse 19 of Romans 3 um, is speaking to that, to, to everything he said so far that everyone is under the judgment of God. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. As we're going to see here more uh, further, that's an explicit statement of scripture. But when it comes to actually satisfying the, the holiness of God that's required in the law, every mouth is shut, uh, we're told. It's so clear. Uh, I wish I could display the, the text here. I've got to figure out a way how to do that on the live program eventually. But although one person said that that's kind of a distraction, but Romans 3.19 says that every mouth is closed. It's every mouth is shut uh, before God. And that's just the way that it's going to be. People immediately want to want to tell you that, well, I've never I've never killed anybody. I've never done this. I've never done that. I'm actually preaching on the sixth commandment uh, this coming uh, Lord's Day and have been reading Thomas Watson's book on the sixth commandment. There are so many ways that we can murder people in our minds and our hearts um, and so many ways that we can harm the image of God and other people. And um so many think, well, I've never killed people. When we when we witness to people on the streets and you, you start talking to them uh, about the law of God, people will, will almost always begin with that one. I've never killed anybody. And the thing is, that might be true. Most people haven't murdered someone physically, but we've done it in our minds. And we've murdered people's names. And we, we've murdered people's, um, uh, their credibility uh, by leading them astray, by a poor example. and There's so many ways that that commandment can be uh, violated. And that's one of the things that Jesus really devoted himself to trying to show people. That's one of the things that the New Testament, really the whole Bible, uh, labors to make clear, is that the commandments of God, the law, requires a lot more than merely outward conformity. It requires uh, that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and dear ones, that's why it's got to be someone else's righteousness that's going to get us past the judgment of God. Because if the law really is a reflection of the holiness of God, then surface level obedience to it is not going to satisfy that holiness. That's why people have such a hard time. People are, are so offended at this idea. You know, people have reacted like with incredulity to that. Like what? God expects us to be perfect to go to heaven. And we're like, yeah, he does. Well, who can do that? I'm like, yay, they're getting it. Nobody can. And that's why you need Christ. That's why you need someone else's righteousness. That's why you need his cross to satisfy 
the justice of God against uh, all the ways that you violated that law. So Paul's summary, and as he begins the greatest paragraph ever written, is to point out every everyone's mouth is stopped. The whole world is accountable to God. The whole world stands condemned and is guilty before God. And then that great summary verse. Therefore, by the deeds of the law or by the works of the law, by, by trying to keep the Ten Commandments or any part of the Old Testament law in any way at all, no flesh shall be justified. It's a very interesting way of putting that. Like, no, no mortal being in God's image, no flesh, pasa sarks there, anopion altu, no flesh before God shall be justified. No, no human being on the day of judgment, past, present, or future, shall be justified by their works. And that's why any attempt to add our, our works or our subjective transformation into our definition of saving faith or into uh, a mythological divine act called final salvation or anything like that is a violation of this passage. This is very clear and it's all-encompassing by the works of the law, by what we do, by anything wrought in us or done by us, shall anyone ever be declared righteous before God, shall be justified before God. And that's another thing that people don't understand this, and they've got to get this. One of the clearest teachings of the whole Old Testament is that God is the judge of the whole world. People are always saying, don't judge me, don't judge me. There was a, a guy I used to work with um, who had a real foul mouth. And every time he cussed, every time he cursed in front of me, um, I didn't say anything, but he would, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Patrick. I'm sorry, Patrick. And I would always say the same thing. I would always tell him, believe me, I'm the least of your worries. Don't worry about offending me. You're offending God. When you use his name as a gutter word, you're offending him. God sees and takes note of everyone that takes his name in vain. God sees and is, and is much displeased with this idea. You want to know how displeased? Look at the cross of Christ. That's the cost of our salvation. Now, obviously, I didn't preach a sermon like that every time he did that. But people will be like that. Oh, I don't want to offend, you know, don't offend the Christian guy. And I'm like, I'm the least of your worries. I don't have any authority to throw you into hell. But the one that you're offending is going to do that if you don't repent and come to know him. Okay, so by the works of the law, by being good enough, by doing enough good works, no one will be justified in his sight. God is the judge of mankind. And people will say, you guys are so judgmental. We're so judgmental. Well, really... We have to judge one another. Everyone does it every day. But in the ultimate sense, only God is the judge, the ultimate judge of all mankind. And he will judge us. He does judge people and God does exclude people. That's one thing that came up when, you know, back when we were in the PCA is, you know, how dare you act like, you know, God, God is excluding, you're excluding the, the LGBTQ community. I'm like, God excludes all of the unrepentant from heaven. He excludes them all. Um, and it says that even in, as the covenant curses are read in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, um, God wanted those covenant curses to be read in the hearing of the people, and they would all shout amen after every one of them. And he, he said, lest it should come into anyone's mind, well, although I follow the dictates of my own heart, I shall have peace and, and everything else, as if the drunkard could be included with the sober, it says. As if someone who is in, in unrepentant sin could be included with those that are repentant. And so, yeah, God is a God who excludes. He excludes. And the ultimate exclusion will happen on the day of judgment. The unrepentant wicked will be excluded from the, the church from all eternity, for, for all eternity. And they'll be outside of that in hell itself. So Paul's summary there, 
No one's works are going to get them justified on the day of judgment because the law condemns everyone. When it comes to satisfying the holiness of God, God as the judge, you will either be condemned or you will be justified. And so because the law of God, while it's a, a blessing and it's righteous and it's just and it's, it's a wonderful thing that God has given to us in his law, it can't help you be saved. The law of God is of no use to you except to point you to Christ. And that brings us to really, I always think of Romans 3.21. It's like the ultimate, the ultimate gear shift. <laughs> like God has shifted gears here in the whole book. Like Romans 1 is, you know, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven and against all this ungodliness and all this wickedness. And he lists every kind of wickedness imaginable from the the uh from the, what we would look at as being smaller, you know, um and not not such big sins to real big ones. He he names them all in Romans 1 18 to 32, and then he turns against the Jews and says, you guys aren't any better. You guys did the same stuff that the Gentiles did. And then Romans 3, he kind of cleans up. And there is no one righteous. There is none who does good. They have all turned aside. They've all turned away. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. And therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh should be justified in his sight. The law of God is of no use to you when it comes to being right with God. As Paul says later in Romans 4, 15, the law brings about wrath. And it always does. When it comes to being right with God, that's what the law does. It shows us our sin. And it shows us why God has righteous, just wrath against sin. Um, just just uh, by way of illustration, when I was uh, on the floor of uh, Presbytery years ago being examined for ordination, uh, someone pitched the question, so what happens to all the innocent people in uh, the New Hebrides Islands or out in Vanuatu or, or out in the, in the Pacific or in Central Africa who, who die. All those innocent people that have never heard the gospel, what happens to them when they die? And I said, they all go to heaven. Because, but now, if, if there were innocent people there, yeah, they'd go to heaven, but there are none. It's an empty set. There's zero people in it. But yeah, innocent people don't need a savior. But that's why the scripture says um, the whole world Everyone in it, every individual is guilty before God. Therefore, here's how you can be saved. Here's how you can be saved. Since the law of God requires us to keep it, and we can't, and we don't, well, how in the world am I going to survive a judgment before the holy God when the only way that he will ever justify me is if I appear there having perfect righteousness? Here's the answer, Romans 3.21. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And it goes on from there, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And we'll get to that in a minute. But think about that opening salvo there in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God. What is that? What is the dikaiosune uh, theyu? What is that? The righteousness of God? That's the righteousness that was achieved by Jesus Christ. That's the righteousness that Luther saw in Romans 1.17. That's what's revealed in the gospel. Remember Romans 1.16-17? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. For, for there is, And then he goes on in verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God, the dikaiosune theyu, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, by faith from first to last. And by the way, if it's by faith from first to last, it's by faith alone. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Not live by faith and works, but the just shall live by faith. That citation from Habakkuk 
So the righteousness of God is the gift righteousness. It's what Romans 5.17 speaks of, the, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. In fact, I'm thinking about writing a little pamphlet called, Do You Have God's Gift of Righteousness? Because, dear ones, if, if you don't have that gift of righteousness imputed legally to your account before God, you're not going to go to heaven. You're not going to go to heaven when you die. So the gospel is the revelation of, of the Lord that the righteousness of God by which we're justified before him is revealed apart from the law, meaning apart from our works, apart from our obedience, apart from our law keeping. My commandment keeping cannot help me get into heaven in any way at all. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel apart from law. And that's why when people try to say, well, our, our love for God is, is somehow included in, in faith in Jesus. No, it's not. Because what is love for God? Love for God is what the law is all about. What does the law of God require? That we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbors ourselves. If you say that love is inside of what saving faith is, then it's, in effect what you're saying is the righteousness of God is revealed in the law. That, that faith in Christ includes our law-keeping, which it clearly does not. The righteousness by which we enter heavenly glory at death is revealed by God apart from the law, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And what he means by being witnessed by the law and the prophets is this is what the Old Testament taught all along. This is what the Old Testament scriptures taught all along. Okay, and so it's, it's absolutely vital that we get this. The idea that we're justified by a righteousness that is imputed to us is not a new covenant concept. That's in Genesis 15, 6. As Paul's going to go on to quote it over and over again, he quotes it in, in Galatians and Romans 4. I think Genesis 15, 6 was Paul's favorite Bible verse because he cites from it all the time. He uses it in his discussion of what justification is all the time. So the gospel that we're justified by a righteousness that's imputed to us, that is witnessed to in the law and the prophets. That's what Isaiah taught. That's what Jeremiah taught. Sorry, there's no matter what I do, there is a beam of, of sunlight coming through my window, reflecting off something right into my eyeballs. So, <laughs> I'm trying to trying to move something in front of it. It's just, can you see it getting me? It's like getting me right in the eye. <laughs> it's driving me crazy. Anyway, <clears throat> so the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the law, since by the deeds of the law, no flaw should be justified in his sight. The law can't help you get into heaven in any way, shape, or form. The righteousness by which we get into heaven is apart from the law. It's apart from our obedience. It's apart from anything that we do. Even the righteousness of God, that's the righteousness that was achieved by Jesus Christ's covenant keeping of the covenant of works through belief in Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. So the righteousness of God is, is imputed to all and it's, it's on all who believe. It's like the piling on of prepositions. It's it's the righteousness of God that is, is given to us and it's put on us and it's like a robe that covers us, it says in Isaiah. And then he goes on to say, for there is no difference. And here's the verse that so many can quote from memory. For all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single person fails. You know, when we used to do that Good News Club out there in, uh, at Bluff City Elementary years ago, we did that for like five or six years, and we'd go out there every Thursday throughout most of the school year, and we would share the gospel with kids, saw a lot of kids, 
uh, had no idea. It was really bizarre to talk to little kids. They didn't even, they didn't know who any of the Bible characters were. They had never heard of Moses, never heard of Noah. They didn't know who uh, the apostles of Christ were. Some of them didn't even know who Jesus was. One of the illustrations I came up with was I took an eraser when we did the Bible lesson, and I will put it right in front of me, like one foot in front of me, and I would ask them, how many of you think that from standing right here, I can jump over this eraser? And they would all say, yeah, yeah you can do it. So I would do it. And then I would take the eraser and throw it all the way across the room. I said, how many think that I can jump over it now? And they would, no, you can't. I said, what if I worked out for a long time and, and really did a bunch of, of leg workouts? And you think I could do it then? No, no, you still couldn't do it. You still could do it. Well, let me try. I, I think I could do it. Let me try. So I would try over and over and over again. And we'll just point out, kids, this is what the standard is for us to get into heaven. It's so far away that no amount of, of trying harder or working out more, you can't even get close to it. You can't even begin to get close to it. All have sinned and fall, fall short of the glory of God. Except think of it like this. I have as much of a chance of getting into heaven by my works as I do of jumping over the moon from right here. You think if I train hard enough, I could do that? No, of course not. So folks, you got to get this. I love how simple this is, this glorious, simple passage. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that's such a glorious verse. So because we can't work our way into heaven, I can't be good enough to go to heaven. I can't, by keeping God's law, get into heaven. My only way of getting into heaven is to be justified as a gift. I love that word, that word that's translated gift there, Dorian. If you've ever known someone named Dorian, Dorian is the, the English equivalent of the Greek word Dorian. It means gift. Gift. Dikaiumenoi uh, Dorian. Being justified freely as a gift. And another illustration I use, it's a beautiful illustration because it's so biblical and it's just, it helps little kids understand this. I'll use this on my, my own kids later. Um, they're all, you know, working on their Christmas list and getting, you know, uh, getting together all the stuff that they want for Christmas. And actually my son uh, has got this airsoft. He's, he bought an airsoft rifle and he told me, you got to get, you got to get an airsoft gun so we can have airsoft wars in the backyard. So um, we're getting him the gift of an airsoft rifle, which he's going to shoot me with because I'm not very good with those things. But it's a gift. What makes it a gift? He's not doing anything to earn it. If my son tries to pay me for his airsoft rifle, it's not a gift. If I accept payment for it, it's not a gift. What's the most wonderful part about giving someone a gift is you paid for it. You want to give them that gift and give it to them free, freely. That's what makes it a gift. Salvation is a gift. Think of Romans 6.23. Um, uh, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life. So what, what wages do we pay for that? We don't. We don't. It's a free gift. The moment you try to earn it, you destroy it. You destroy it. If I allowed my kids to pay me, for their Christmas gifts, they're not gifts then, are they? What, what if I let them pay a little bit of it? It's still not a gift. Any payment for it, it's not a gift anymore. Y'all tracking with this? It's so clear here. That word, that's a special word, Dorayon. 
without cost. You look it up in the lexicography. Doreon means without cost. Being justified without cost. By his grace. Karati. Grace. Karas. That word. That beautiful word. Karas. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So it's free because it was paid for by Christ. That's what apolutrosis refers to. Redemption. That word is a glorious word. If you read uh, Leon Morris's wonderful book, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, he does word studies on all the major words that are used in Scripture to uh, describe what the cross of Christ accomplishes. There's a whole chapter on redemption, on the Greek word apolutrosis. What, is, what does it mean? Redeem. It was a price you had to pay. It was a price you paid um, back way back then when kings went to battle with one another. If, um, if they lost a battle, and you know, three or four thousand of their soldiers were taken prisoner, they would have to pay the victorious king to get those guys back. They would have to redeem them. Redeem them. I was just reading Exodus 13 this morning. Um, the firstborn child was redeemed because you had to give the firstborn of all your flock and everything else as an as an offering. Obviously, you're not going to give your children as an offering, but you would have to to sacrifice one of your animals to redeem. That firstborn son. What does that mean? It means you pay the price to buy him. Jesus purchased his church. He paid for the gift of righteousness. He paid for the gift of our justification by dying for it. He paid the price. He paid the price so that I would never have to pay the price. He was not spared and, and took the full force of God's wrath so I could be spared. So that that gift of eternal life could be given freely to me. That's why it, it just it blows my mind when I hear about people who apostatize from the true gospel to embrace the, the treadmill of Romanism or the treadmill of Eastern Orthodoxy or the treadmill of a thousand other groups out there. Do you not understand? You can't pay for what is a gift. You can't pay for what's a gift. It's the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation. There's another There's another glorious term, that term hilasterion. Hilasterion, what does that refer to? It is a sacrifice which turns aside divine wrath. Remember the, where the wings of the cherubim met on top of the Ark of the Covenant? It's called the mercy seat or the propitiatory. And that's where the blood of the sacrificial animal was sprinkled to do what? To satisfy the justice of God. God the Father set forth Christ, that redeeming work of Jesus at the cross, at the cross, propitiation by his blood. What does that mean? How, how does the, the blood of Christ satisfy the wrath of God? Well, think about it. The blood, the shedding of his blood is a, is a, a sign of what? His death. What did God tell Adam in the Garden of Eden? In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. You will surely die. The shedding of Christ's blood and his death pays for what the covenant of works sanction said had to happen if it was violated. You violate this commandment. You violate my law. You're going to die. And it's very emphatic. It's called an infinitive absolute there in Hebrew. I remember looking at that uh, when I first took Hebrew in seminary, looking at uh, Genesis chapter 2, and looking at verse 2, uh, 16 and following, where the covenant of works is, is spelled out by God. 
and the day you eat of it, it says you shall die, die. <laughs> like, die, die. It's the same verb, except the second time it's in what's called the infinitive absolute. And I'm thinking, how do you translate that? That's why it's translated as surely die. It's it's there for emphasis or die the death or die, die. You will surely die if you disobey God. And that's why what saves us? It's not my suffering. My suffering cannot help me get to heaven in any way, shape, or form. And it certainly can't help you get to heaven in any way, shape, or form. It's the death of Christ, the, the God-man, the Lamb of God, whose death takes away the sin of the world, whose death, his shed blood, propitiates the wrath of Almighty God against all of my law-breaking whom God set forth as a propitiation, as a hilasterion by his blood, as a sacrifice which turns away divine wrath by his blood. His death satisfies my breach of the covenant of works because God said in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. I'm guilty of Adam's first sin. So is everybody else. That's why we're all mortal. That's why we're subject to death. And I'm also guilty of my own sins. And they all deserve death, the wrath and curse of God. But that wrath and curse is paid for by Christ's death. And that wrath and curse is propitiated by the blood of Christ through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. How does the death of Jesus demonstrate God's righteousness? Because, dear ones, listen, God cannot simply arbitrarily forgive. He can't do that. The, the covenant of works and our law-breaking has got to be dealt with. Someone who's perfect and infinitely perfect has got to die in my place to satisfy that sanction, that penalty. And someone's got to achieve a perfect righteousness. So the death of Jesus, the whole life of Jesus, the humiliation of Christ, his whole life of law-keeping, his whole life of obeying God demonstrates the, the nature of God as righteous. God can't let bygones be bygones. That covenant of works has got to be entered into by someone else, by someone who starts out sinless, just like the first Adam did, except he's got to maintain it his whole life. That's why Luke chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is tempted, he's tempted in every way we are, and he never gives in, he never succumbs to that temptation. He achieves that righteousness and demonstrates the righteousness of God. His death on the cross is the laying upon him the iniquities of all his people. That propitiatory death, that, that death he died, propitiates the wrath of God through his blood, his loss of life on the cross, his death that he died, satisfies that covenant sanction. And it goes on, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Isn't that interesting? The, the Passover lamb, the Passover lambs, when God saw the blood, when he saw the blood of the lamb on the house, he, he would pass over pass over that house and his judgment would not fall on it. And he did that for you know a couple thousand years. There was the Passover and he passed over. Except in this, this place, it's not that the wrath is really passed over. It, it falls hard on Christ this time. That's why it's very significant that Jesus is crucified during the Feast of Passover. He institutes the Lord's Supper during the Feast of Passover. And so it's all it all points to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it goes on there, Romans 3.26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. See, God is holy. 
God is righteous. That's why if I'm going to go to heaven, my sins have got to be paid for. I'm a covenantal creature. I am in covenant with God. And that covenant of works is broken. And like the whole world, I am condemned before God. And if he does not justify me by paying for my sins himself at the cross in the incarnation and achieving that righteousness that's imputed to my account, I'm not going to heaven. So God demonstrates his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. By faith, we lay hold of Christ. By faith, here, here's what faith is. Faith is letting go of trusting in anything that you've done. Your works in any sense whatsoever. you got to let go of them and you lay hold of Christ. And you trust fully and only in his finished work to save you. That's what it is to be a Christian. That's what it is to be a Christian. You let go of trusting in anything that you've done or what you think God is doing in your heart or anything like that. And you lay hold of Christ and you trust his work alone saves. That's what all this is about. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. What that's saying is you can't contribute anything whatsoever to the gift of eternal life. And I want to emphasize that again. The moment you think that what you're doing plays some role in saving you or getting into heaven, it's not a gift anymore. It's not a gift anymore. And you destroy it altogether. Paul's very clear about that. In Galatians chapter 5, he says, I solemnly testify to you. If you receive circumcision, what, what does he mean by that? If you start trusting in anything alongside of Christ, in addition to Christ or other than Christ, Christ will be of no benefit to you, he says. You either believe that he saves and does it perfectly and does it all, or he's not in the equation for you. And he says, and I testify to anyone who receives circumcision, you are a debtor to keep the whole law. It's either you save yourself by your works alone, or you trust in the finished work of Christ. And if you mix those two things, if you try to add anything to Christ, Christ will be of no benefit to you, he says. Coming to God means coming to God on his terms. His terms are, you pronounce a curse on yourself and on everything that you will ever do in life, and you receive and rest upon Christ alone for the whole of your salvation. For only his righteousness is sufficient to save us. All right, let me see who's over here real quick. Luke Stacy, the Presbyterian. <laughs> Luke, it's good to see you on there, my man. Jonas, good to see you. Paul Garvey from England. Um, good to see you. And there's Daisy. You made the live. Yeah. And uh, congrats. I heard that. I heard you're married. That's wonderful. Praise the Lord for that. And there's Susan. Hey, Susan. I had to email you back. Yeah, I haven't forgotten. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Marriage does that. Marriage makes you super busy, crazy busy, uh, especially when kiddos come along. Then you'll like, like, yeah, you forget everything, man. When people say only God can judge me goes to show they don't know who God is. Yeah. The thought of that ought to make you tremble. Yep. Yeah, people will, will hide behind that. Well, you can't judge me. Only God does. Yeah, that should make you stay up all night uh, in terror. 
but there, there again, you have to trust in the the work of, of the Lord. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts people of sin. Only He can He can do that effectually, uh, to bring them to a, a saving knowledge of Himself. Philly Flipper, uh, you're new. Hello, Stained Glass Podcast. Good afternoon, Saints. There's Jonas. What is the book you mentioned to get the meaning of all the big words of Bible? Good question. Here, let me put that that title in here. Um, the Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, and that's Leon Morris. That one book of the year in like 1954, I think it was when it came out. But Leon Morris is like the guy when it comes to the atonement. He's like, he's done that for so long or did that for so long. I think he's, he's probably gone on to glory. Um, and it's the absolute preaching of the, of the cross is um, a pretty scholarly work. And it's, it's pretty heavy duty reading. He wrote another, he wrote an abridged version of it. That's not as, as hard to read called the atonement. It's meaning and sig significance, which is a little bit easier uh, to read than the apostolic preaching of the cross. So um, <laughs> speaking of my son, Malachi, um, he, he is a, a, my, my son who's got a type 1 diabetes. We had to get him a phone um, to, uh, to do his um, insulin pump, which he's wonderful about doing. But he just texted me, can I open it? I.e. my airsoft gun arrived, the one I'm going to be fighting him with. Okay. Yes, you can open it. Okay. So, all right. Um, all right. Let's see real quick. There's Art Shannon. Hey, good to see you. There's TG. What about workers of lawlessness and doing the will of the Father? Um, yeah, everyone that goes to hell goes because they're workers of lawlessness. Um, doing the will of the Father um, is believing in the one whom he sent. That's the work that God requires of us, according to John 6. And there's also the issue of sanctification. Every single person who is justified will be sanctified, but Paul's not addressing that here. Um, we will get into that as we press on through Romans. I need to get back to just doing this straight biblical exposition because people people have told me they missed that because uh, I do the I do the rants against liberalism, which you know I reserve the right to do that. I'm allowed to rant if I want to uh, about liberalism and progressivism and all the the looniness going on with that. Um, but yeah, uh, let's see. Um, 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 um. Doing the will of the Father from Matthew 7, 22 and following. It's a commonly misused passage. I should do a whole podcast on that. Um, it's actually, um, actually, let's look at that real quick here. Then we'll get back to Romans. Matthew 7, 21 and following here. Uh, not Romans 7, Matthew 7, 21. Yeah, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, one of the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. So you were saved by works. No. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Notice, what are these people trusting in? What are they trusting in? <laughs> Their works. Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And what are they told? I never knew you. Depart from me. Those that know Christ are not going to appear on that day. Lord, Lord, look at what I did. I did this and this and this. Those that know Christ appear on the last day. All I've got is the blood and righteousness of Christ. Period. And brothers and sisters, I'll tell you, and those that, that don't know Christ that might watch this, I'm so very thankful to God for all the work that he's done in my life. God has changed me a lot since I was converted 30 years ago. Okay, I was 18 years old when God finally broke through and saved my, my lost soul. And boy, I'll tell you, I, I remember not so clearly because I just remember thinking all the time, um, man, there's just so much wrong with you. <laughs> like, oh, there's so much you, that you got to work on. There's so many things that need to change. You, you've got to... You've got to get your stuff together. I just remember thinking, I want to serve God. I want to love him. I want to be godly. But just thinking, just overwhelmed with how much work there is to do. And you know what? I, I bet you're expecting me to say, and it's been so great to be so godly. No, 
the, the workload of what all needs to change has only gotten bigger since then. Because the thing is, the closer you get to God, to the light, uh, the more the light illumines the darkness and illumines all the spots and all the flaws and everything else that needs to change. I'm very thankful to God, very thankful to God for all the changes that he's wrought in my life, all the, the sins that he has helped me to have a tremendous measure of victory over in my life. But I would never trust in them to help me get to heaven, ever. The moment you, you rely on what you've done, that just shows you don't understand Christianity. And it also destroys the true motive for good works. I love my neighbor. I love the congregation here. I love my friends. I love my wife. I love my children as, as an act of gratitude to God. I don't use them to gain merit for myself. But always notice that this doing the will of the Father, people misuse that passage in Matthew 7, 21 and following constantly. It's not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do the will of my Father. But the ones who are cast away into hell in the passage are those who say, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? And haven't we done this in your name? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those that know Christ and those that truly are reconciled to God and are children of God, they don't appear on the day of judgment trusting in what they did. I assure you, if I'm, if I'm not out of my mind when I'm dying, if I know it's coming, I'm going to be laying there thinking and trusting only in the finished work of Christ and thinking all I've got is Christ. All I have is Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain. What's going to get me past the final judgment? The righteousness of God that was to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift. Romans 5.17. How much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life through the one. That's what my confidence is in. And that is the only thing my confidence is in. Praise God for all the sanctifying work he's done in my life. Praise God for all the sin he's helped me overcome. But I pronounce a curse on trusting in anything other than the finished work of Christ to get me into heaven. That's all we have is that. Okay, let's see who else is over here chatting. There are tons of missed, uh, misused passages. <laughs> yeah, you could do many podcasts. Yeah. I should do a co commonly misused passages. That'd be a good series. That'd be a good series to do uh, for sure. Um, Jonas, TG, another thing. I had one of those um, vivid rapture dreams and it was terrifying. <laughs> yeah, if you were raised in evangelical fundamentalism like I was, you've you've been terrorized with the left behind stuff. <laughs> uh, in fact, um, I need to do a whole nother program on just the final verses of Romans. So actually, let, let me get back to it here. I was going to tell you a story about that kind of a funny story um but i'll tell you that in a minute paul says in romans 3 27 where is boasting then it is excluded now that that ought to do away with romanism eastern orthodoxism every other goofy form of of galatianism that's out there i don't care if it masquerades as being the true church or not where's boasting it's excluded Okay, my, it's not a synergistic thing. It's not God's grace making it possible for me to do the works that will save me. See the sunlight. See, it's trying to hit me in the eye, but it's, it's missing. It's, it's only hitting me on the cheek. Where is that coming from? Oh, there's like this one little hole in there I missed. That drives me crazy. Okay, by what law? By what principle is what that's really saying? By what principle? By, by a principle of works? No, but by the principle of faith. Meaning, the reason that boasting is excluded is because justification is by faith, not works. That's really what that's saying. When it says by what law, it means by what idea, by what principle, 
by the by uh, but of works no but by the principle that we're justified by faith the law of faith therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law how much clearer could that be and dear ones anytime someone tries to say ah just that's only excluding circumcision and dietary laws <laughs> no it's not no it's not it's excluding everything any works at all Look at Romans chapter 2. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? Question. Is stealing part of the ceremonial law? You who preach against adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What is the Where in the Old Testament law is the prohibition against stealing, adultery, and idolatry found? The Ten Commandments. People will try to limit this to the ceremonial works. It, doesn't, it makes no sense to do that. And think about Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Through the ceremonial law, we become conscious of sin. Now, certainly, that's that's part of it, but it's primarily through the Decalogue. It's primarily through the Ten Commandments, the ones he's been talking about in Romans 2. Stealing, idolatry, adultery, and so forth. We conclude a man is justified by faith, apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who would justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. That kind of does away with dispensationalism. There is not one plan of salvation or justification for Jews and one for Gentiles. Or one for Israel and one for the church. There's one God and there's one human race and there's Jews and Gentiles and they're both justified and saved in exactly the same way. And then the, 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 uh, the, here's the thing I've been accused of over and over again. And it always warms my heart when people do this. You're making void the law through faith. You're saying you can live like the devil and still go to heaven. Do we then make void the law through faith? Do we then say you can live like the devil and still go to heaven? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. We uphold the law. We love the law of God. It is our meditation all the day. We have more insight than all of our teachers because we meditate on God's law, on God's statutes. Rivers of water run down from our eyes because men do not keep God's law. We run in the path of God's commandments, for he has enlarged our hearts. We love God's law, but we don't seek to be saved by it or justified by it. Because justification is a gift purchased by the redemption of Jesus Christ. Okie dokie. All right. Um, I've got some sermon preparation I need to do here. Uh, let's see. It's so good to see everybody. Uh, good to see all over there. Good to see faces old and new. Um, thanks for being there. Lucas, good to have you on here, my dear brother. Luke Stacy, the Presbyterian. Um, love you, man. Praying for you, for your family. We miss you guys. Um, we're at the 46 minute mark. That's good. That's a good program. But uh, thank you all for being here again. Uh, Daisy, congratulations on getting married. I've uh, been praying that that would all go well. Uh, marriage is a, is a wonderful blessing, uh, but it does take work. It does take work. So thank you all for being here. Thanks for watching or for listening.